excerpt from the movie Star Wars 1977. It was later renamed A New Hope, courtesy Walt Disney Studios. Darth Vader, aka Anakin Skywalker, confronts his one-time mentor and friend, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Only a master of evil, Darth. Your powers are weak, old man. You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. January 22nd, 1973. The CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite, courtesy National Amusements, Gulf, and Western Industries. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. and welcome to Scandal Sheet. So, the men and women in black were nice enough to host an enormous block party down on First Street in the District of Columbia last Friday, June 24th. Now, First Street is where the Supreme Court building is located. And it was awesome. They had music, singing, food, bullhorns, and hundreds of cops. Everything you need for a first-class block party. Just like Times Square on New Year's Eve. At first I thought, well, this is a summer solstice celebration, just like they do every year at Stonehenge in England. But no! The reason for the party was a little thing called the Dobbs v. Jackson opinion. My name is Thad Housley, and I am joined by co-host Ellie. Ellie, how are you? I'm good. I'm full swing into summer mode, so um, thanks for thanks for pulling me inside for this. I, I tried to record outside while I was hiking, but you know, that just the, the cell service was spotty. And so I, I figured I'd have to come inside for this. Well, so yeah, that must have, I, I see that it's 65 degrees there in Anchorage. So it must have been kind of annoying to have to come in just for this, but thank you. It, it's okay. We have plenty of daylight. So there's, there's plenty of time for activities later. It's all good. Well, that's true. I forgot. Yeah. You've got what, 20 hours of daylight. So that's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but, the other day we were fishing till like midnight, so you know it's easy moly. to lose track of time. Wow! So I was going to ask you uh, about uh, folks in Alaska. I mean, all of this stuff that's been going on this week here in Washington D.C. is are, are people just sh- shrugging their shoulders over there? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, the salmon started to run, so. That's kind of all we're focused on right now. Plus, we have our own election going on. And um, like, as we talked about in a previous podcast with Sarah Palin. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're just pretty distracted by everything else. And the rest of the country can just kind of do its thing. 
And deja vu all over again as we welcome back New York's multi-year super lawyer and listener favorite, David Grover, from the firm of Grover and Fensterstock. Welcome back, David. Hey, Thad. Hey, Ellie. Great to be here. And wow, what a week, right? (laughs) What a great time to do an episode. And it's not every day that New York itself becomes a bullseye for a Supreme Court decision. You must feel very honored. Well, I'm here. I, I love my city. I live and work in Manhattan. So this is my, my place, my family. Everybody's here. So yeah, it, it's pretty wild right now. And I think, um, I know we don't have time for a five-hour episode with everything going on this week. I think we almost <laughs> could do a five-hour I think you're right. Yes, I think you're right. And of course, no Scandal Sheet episode would be complete without the contributions of our artificial intelligence engine, Bernice. Watch your step, Mr. Halkley. I am now armed with a concealed weapon. I'll keep that in mind, Bernice. I hope you took a class on how to use that thing. So today we're going to talk about two, not one, but two groundbreaking Supreme Court decisions released only two days apart from one another. As I mentioned at the very top, one is the Dobbs v. Jackson uh, women's health opinion, and the other is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin. So that's a mouthful. Uh, so in the second one, we'll just call it Bruin from now on, if you guys don't mind. And just like in the previous Supreme Court episode, I want to emphasize that we're not a partisan political podcast. We're not either going, we're not going to argue either for or against the merits of any particular court decision. There's many, many other pods that do that. So you don't need us for that. However, we are scandal sheets. So our mission is to ask questions from the standpoint of skepticism. But we only want to forensically understand the judicial logic being deployed in these decisions and determine whether it's being applied consistently either by an individual justice or by the court as a whole from case to case. And also, what does this portend for other landmark decisions that suddenly seem vulnerable to being overturned? So back to back historic landmark decisions in one week. David, without giving the whole episode away, do you want to start us off with any initial thoughts? Well, like I've said in the past, that this is not your grandfather's Supreme Court. This is wild. This is dramatic. We haven't seen anything like this really before our lifetimes. I mean, this is really big, big stuff. Country changing, and it's going to change the way we live our life every day. So this is something we haven't really experienced. So, yes, this is as big as you're letting on. This is big, big stuff. Wow. Wow. Okay. Ellie, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, you know, I have no legal background. So I would agree with David that it's like big, big stuff. I I also feel like the, the temperature of the whole country was starting to settle a little bit, like it was all kind of coming down. And every all the normal working people were like, okay, we're getting screwed by inflation. We can't afford houses. We can't afford to put gas in our cars that we overpaid for last year. It's okay. All right. We're going into a recession. Like everybody was just starting to like hibernate. And now it's just like the temperature just like shot back up, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) now everybody's talking about all this stuff again. So I, you know, we were just kind of starting to cruise into summer mode and uh, yeah, I, I think it just, 
it's an interesting time to for a lot of these like really controversial. So, um, yeah. So before we proceed further, I wanted to remind our listeners that Ellie, David, and I did an episode six weeks ago when a draft of the Dobbs opinion written by Alito and his clerks was somehow leaked. Now, we republished that episode uh, on Friday, June 24th, right after the, the actual opinion came out just for listeners who hadn't heard it and maybe as a nice little intro into today's episode. So let's start with that Dobbs case. Bernice, can you give us a synopsis of the facts of the case? In 2018, Mississippi passed a law called the Gestational Age Act, which prohibits all abortions, with few exceptions, after 15 weeks gestational age. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the only licensed abortion facility in Mississippi, and one of its doctors filed a lawsuit in federal district court challenging the law and requesting an emergency temporary restraining order O. After a hearing, the district court granted the restraining order while the litigation proceeded to discovery. After discovery, the district court granted the clinic's motion for summary judgment and enjoined Mississippi from enforcing the law, finding that the state had not provided evidence that a fetus would be viable at 15 weeks, and Supreme Court precedent prohibits states from banning abortions prior to viability. But the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit affirmed. So, David, the case was supposed to be a ruling on whether Dobbs v. Jackson was constitutional or not. The federal appellate court held that it was not. The state of Mississippi filed a writ of certiorari with the Supreme Court for review of the lower court decision. And first, David, what is a writ of certiorari and how badly am I mispronouncing that word? I think it's close enough. I don't, I don't know if anybody actually pronounces it correctly, but <laughs> okay. I think people just say cert, right? They just say, yes, yeah, exactly. Cert. Yeah, it, 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 yes. And it's pretty simple. All, all it really is, is it's an appeal to a higher court to review a lower court's decision. That's pretty much all it is. And in the in the Supreme Court, you need four justices to agree to hear the appeal. That's pretty much all it is. And hard to get that. Hard to get four justices to agree on that. Right, because they only do about 80 cases a year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 rare. Okay, and so, so what does the majority decision say? Okay, so the majority decision basically says, first of all, that the Mississippi law is constitutional in terms of Roe v. Wade, but then they go way beyond that and say, and by the way, Roe v. Wade was decided incorrectly and therefore we are we are overruling the 50-year precedent of Roe v. Wade. So that's where this got big. They didn't just answer the question of whether or not that is constitutional, the Mississippi law, the majority, besides Justice Roberts, went a step further and said, yes, let's just be done with this here. Let's stop hearing all these little cases. And No, no, we're done. This is what it is. Bye-bye. That's pretty much what they decided. And they have the authority to do that, to expand their jurisdiction whenever they feel like it? Yeah. They have the authority to do anything they want, pretty much. Um, do you remember that scene from Greece when they were racing on Thunder Road and I think they asked Craterface what the rules were and he said the rules are, there are no rules? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's pretty much the case here All with right. the Supreme Court. 
they could pretty much do anything they want, and there's not much we could do about it. You know, there are things like impeachment would never ha- which never happens, packing the court, which never happens. Both these things have been discussed over the years. I think there's been one impeachment in our country's history. Um, packing the court was discussed back during the New Deal FDR years. It's been discussed recently after some of the latest Supreme Court appointments and confirmations. But these are things that have not happened and probably won't be happening anytime soon. Do they at least have to stay? Like, for example, could they have thrown contraception into this if they felt like it? Um, I don't. Ooh, good question. I don't think so. But then again, I just said they could do anything they want. So, yeah, you did. Well, <laughs> it wasn't part of the case. No. So it would have been difficult to do that. You're deciding in this case, and then you're adding that, okay, Roe v. Wade is overruled by this fact pattern. It would be a little convoluted and a little crazy if they're saying, oh, and by the way, other cases that aren't before us are also decided that way. So the basic answer is it would really, really be tough for them to take a case that is not based on that question and add to that. I think the best they probably could have done is what uh, Justice Thomas sort of did and say, yeah, these things should be reviewed as well. But I don't think they could have overruled a case that wasn't actually before them. Okay. At least Roe and Casey were about abortion. So they were in the same subject matter, I guess. Yeah, it would have been something completely outrageous and crazy. I, no, they, need to, they really need to decide what's before them, not other cases that aren't before them. So, David, there was a difference between Alito's majority opinion and Chief Justice Roberts' provisional concurrence. And he writes that he concurred with upholding the Mississippi law, but would not have struck down Roe or Casey. So can you explain what's going on there, like why he agreed with it, but also said that part of it shouldn't have happened? Yeah, you know, Justice Roberts is a institutionalist. Justice Roberts cares about the reputation of the court. Justice Roberts is very different than the other conservative justices on the court. So when this case case came up, Justice Roberts basically said, hey, I want to decide this just on the question before us. The Mississippi law, he believed, was constitutional in terms of even under Roe v. Wade. And that's kind of all he wanted to do. The other five conservative justices said, no, 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 no. We want to make a big statement here. We don't want to do this bit by bit like Justice Roberts wants to do. In every case, we'll get closer and closer. They're like, you know something? We're going to get there anyway. Let's just do it right now in one big swoop. Roe v. Wade, gone. Overruled. And this is really not Justice Roberts' style. That's why he couldn't join them. He likes doing things incrementally, slowly public opinion, cares about the reputation. So this was really against his better judgment. It also shows he doesn't have a lot of control over the court. A lot of these chief justices have control and they kind of get uh, groups together to agree. And he they really overruled him here. So while, yes... Yeah, that's, that's one question I was going to ask about like him being the chief. Because it kind of seems like if he's the chief, like he should be able to maybe rein people in or like, you know, kind of stop the decision-making process at like just the Mississippi law instead of like 
letting the conversation continue into Roe or Casey? Like how, what, what exactly is his position as the chief? And like, if he disagrees with what the ultimate outcome was, why couldn't he do anything to stop it? Can't. I mean, historically, chief justices do have some control over the court. And they're able to rein people in and come out, come up with a nice decision that a lot of people agree with. He lost control over the conservative part of the court, even though he's a conservative. They're a little more, um, the word is dramatic or willing to do big things, while he is just not like that. He likes things slow and methodical, and the arrest don't care about that. So yeah, in theory, he's the chief justice, or he is the chief justice. But he doesn't have control over them. There's no direct authority, except in the past, they tend to have control over their justices. But now they're completely rogue. Yeah, he only has one vote like everybody else, right? So, but like you said, they used to have, I mean, someone like Rehnquist had tons of influence over everybody, right? Even the even the liberals. Yeah, and because, you know, that's that's their reputation to rein everybody in. To put the court on one pace. Well, not everyone's going to agree. There's always going to be a difference in votes. But this is something that a chief justice in the old days would have had some control over. It's very odd to see this. very rare to see a chief justice overruled that way by his own party, for lack of a, of a better term. His own party kind of overruling him. You never really see that. Hmm. Or rarely see that. Okay. So I'm going to play these clips for you. And these are uh, clips from the confirmation hearings of the three Trump appointed judges who constitute the supermajority. So March 21st, 2017, Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch at his confirmation hearing. Can you tell me whether Roe was decided correctly? Senator, again, I would tell you that Roe versus Wade decided in 1973 is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It has been reaffirmed. The reliance interest considerations are important there. And all of the other factors that go into analyzing precedent have to be considered. It is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It was reaffirmed in Casey in 1992 and in several other cases. So a good judge will consider it as precedent of the United States Supreme Court worthy as treatment of precedent like any other. Had you ever met President Trump personally? <clears throat> Not until my interview. In that interview, did he ever ask you to overrule Roe v. Wade? No, Senator. What would he have done if he if he'd asked? Senator, I would have walked out the door. It's not what judges do. Okay. They don't do it at that end of Pennsylvania Avenue, and they shouldn't do it at this end either, respectfully. September 5th, 2018. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh at his confirmation hearing. Uh, Roe v. Wade is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. It's been reaffirmed many times. It was reaffirmed in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 when the court specifically considered whether to reaffirm it or whether to overturn it. In that case, uh, in great detail, the three-justice opinion of Justice Kennedy, Justice Souter, and Justice O'Connor went through all the factors, the stare decisis factors, analyzed those, and decided to reaffirm Roe. That makes uh, Casey precedent on precedent. It's been relied on. Casey itself has been cited as authority in subsequent cases, such as Glucksburg 
and other cases. Uh, so that precedent on precedent is quite important in, as you think about uh, stare decisis in this context. October 13, 2020. Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, at her confirmation hearing. Judges can't just wake up one day and say, I have an agenda, I like guns, I hate guns, I like abortion, I hate abortion, and walk in like a, a royal queen and impose you know, their will on the world. You have to wait for cases and controversies, which is the language of the Constitution, to wind their way through the process. I have not made any commitments or deals or anything like that. Would you commit yourself on whether you would or would not? Senator, what I will commit is that I will obey all the rules of stare decisis, that if a question comes up before me about whether Casey or any other case should be overruled, that I will follow the law of stare decisis, applying it as the court has articulated it, applying all the factors, reliance, workability, um, being undermined by later facts and law, just all the standard factors, and I promise to do that for any issue that comes up, abortion or anything else, I'll follow the law. Okay, so David and Ellie, we talked about this a little bit in a last episode about how Alito in his confirmation hearings, how he skillfully kind of danced around any direct answer to whether he would overturn Roe. But in the clips we just heard, these future three justices are a lot less ambiguous. I mean, they don't make any promises, but they do come off as pretty convincing that they consider, you know, Roe and Casey settled law. I mean, what do you guys think? They had me fooled. Yeah. They were talking about precedent and stuff. So um, my non-legal brain believed them. (laughs) I don't know what David smelled in that, in all those uh, interviews. Well, I mean, I think they were clearly being misleading. They were not being honest. I don't, I don't think their decision in this case was something they just woke up one day and said, hey, this is the way we should go. So I think they said what they had to say in order to be confirmed. I mean, it's hard to look to hear these things and say, yeah, they're being, they were not being honest. Okay. They're politicians. They were trying to get confirmed and they're saying what has to be said in order to be confirmed in the Senate in this in uh, 2022 or whatever years that they were. So, yeah, I don't I don't think they were being ethical and I don't think they were being honest. Well, so that constitutes and, and I wrote this in because I, you know, I was listening to the Sunday morning talk shows uh, on all the networks this morning and people are talking about perjury, you know, and is perjury an impeachable offense? And, you know, a lot of guys were saying, yeah, perjury is a crime, man. There's a lot of people in jail right this second who lied before a congressional committee. You know, it's like what up to seven years in jail and three hundred fifty thousand dollar fine. So, I mean, David, I know we had said in the last episode they almost never impeach Supreme Court justices. But the word has been uttered. Yeah, but you know something? I don't see how this could be considered perjury. Okay. Um, by almost any definition I've ever seen, I know there are rare, rare cases, but for the most part, perjury is lying under oath about something in the past, not something that you promise or may do in the future. So, okay. for example, yeah, so for example, if I say to you, um, I did not watch the Mets game yesterday, I actually did, they won, it was a nice game, okay, I would be lying, that'd be perjury if I was under oath. 
But if I tell you I will watch the Mets game tomorrow and I don't, that's not perjury. Telling you what my intention is is not a lie in terms of definition under perjury because it wasn't a lie when I said it as opposed to something that I discussed that I did or did not do in the past. See the difference? He's a good lawyer, isn't he, Ellie? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to call him if I, you know, if I get in trouble. So, <laughs> well, I mean, the other point you made that I want to touch on is, okay, with at least with these three uh, justices, the Republicans had a definite majority in the Senate. So there never was any doubt whether they would be confirmed, which begs the question, why bother to mislead the committee or lie or whatever you want to call it? No, actually, if you remember, I think Kavanaugh was pretty, it was a close call. And in fact, it was a big, it was in the news this week that Susan Collins was pretty upset. Because if you remember, she was kind of a deciding vote there. She was really on the fence. He went to her office in D.C. and pretty much told her, I will not overrule Roe v. Wade. He lied to her. And she's a Republican. She's a Republican. She was a moderate Republican, a big swing vote on this on yeah. this confirmation. He lied. He, I don't like to use the word lie, but he certainly misrepresented to her about his intentions and what he would do. And, and she's pretty upset about it, apparently. Which is which is yeah, not and- perjury. It's just broken promises, which is the basis broken. for a good country song. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> We'll just call it pillow talk. Um, (laughs) Unethical. We could talk about that. We could talk about whether he misrepresented. Not quite perjury. Yeah, and and there was, I think, like you, the reason it was a close call with him was because there was the added complication of the rape charge uh, that that had you know some people conflicted. Yeah, so, and that, that was, it was very controversial. Yeah, the whole thing was yeah. very controversial, obviously. It was. That, that, that was a big part of it. It was. Okay, so, um, David, what are the potential consequences for other constitutionally protected rights based upon the due process clause, such as contraception or interracial marriage? I mean, should we talk, you know, should we start to open these things? I know a lot of people are a little concerned about what this supermajority in the Supreme Court might start overruling in the future? You know, it's a great question, you know, because if you read the legal analysis on this decision, it absolutely opens a door to overrule all those cases you just mentioned, right? Um, whether it's for contraception, whether it's for gay marriage, whether it's for even gay relations, it opens it opens the door for everything. If you're saying the Fourteenth Amendment does not guarantee these rights, yes, absolutely can be overruled. Now you want to get into what may or may not happen. All the conservative justices, outside of Clarence Thomas, were mm-hmm. pretty careful in different ways of saying this is just about abortion, not about anything else. So they were pretty clear. Doesn't of course mean they have to stay that way. Doesn't mean they have to rule in the future that well, way. Well, that's the thing. I mean, do we trust them? <laughs> no, and you can't. Well, that's the thing. You can't really trust them. No, Thomas was a little more, uh, I don't know, honest, open, and said, "Hey, yeah, we should go back and review all these cases 
translation, yeah. we should overrule these cases. That's kind of how I read it. Well, yeah, and he's been that way for 30 years, though. So it was, it was like, it wasn't that big a surprise, right? But the question is going to be, will Alito and Kavanaugh and Barrett cave at some point when the right case comes through? Yeah, I mean, it's like now the American people, like we've been kind of burned by these broken promises now that were made over the last 50 years. And then with these justices saying things during their confirmation hearing that they didn't follow through on. So, I mean, Clarence Thomas was the only one who opened that can of worms and was like, yeah, sure, let's go ahead and start overturning all these other cases. And the other conservative justices said, no, 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 it's fine. But but now I think everybody is questioning that because the the whole the whole country is like hesitant to believe them. Yeah, I, and I think it's fair. And I think if I had a bet, like most things in life, the answer is probably somewhere in between. So they may not do dramatic overruling overrules of those cases, but they might kind of bit by bit eat away at them and kind of change them somewhat. They may not go all the way. But, you know, like you said, after what happened this week, anything could happen. You know, no one wants to be in a car or a motorcycle accident or a slip and fall that causes physical or mental damage. And even construction accidents are on the rise today. But if you or a friend or family member are injured, you need a professional and understanding law firm that has experience in getting the most for their clients' injuries. And you can find all of that at the law firm of Grover and Fensterstock. They are a premier personal injury firm located in New York City, and their track record is excellent. They have years of experience working and winning for their clients. Now, they offer a free consultation, and they only get paid when you get paid. So how do you get in touch with them? Well, you call David Grover at 1-866-99-LAWYER and mention that you were referred by the Scandal Sheet Podcast, one of your favorite podcasts, of course. So David Grover at Grover and Fensterstock, 1-866-99-LAWYER, 866-99-L-A-W-Y-E-R. You'll be glad you called. In the last episode, the one that we, uh, Supreme Court episode, the one where we talked about the leaked opinion, it came up briefly on whether there would be, whether this decision might have an influence on the upcoming midterm election. So things have been going pretty bad for the Biden administration. You know, we've got inflation going on, high prices at the gas pump, rising interest rates. It's his approval ratings are, are at rock bottom. And so everybody, the, the universal assumption was that, well, the Republicans are going to take back the Congress in November, four months from now. But as of this weekend, the new polls are saying maybe that's not going to happen because this is really mixing up the board. What do you guys think? I think this is definitely bad for the Republicans. How bad? We don't know yet, right? We'll see how that kind of plays out, but it's definitely bad. And if you don't believe me, listen to ex-President Trump, because he said the same thing this week. He said something to the effect of, this is bad for politics, bad for the Republicans. I heard that. Wow, yeah. yeah. So he even thought so, and I know they will believe that, because look, before this case, before Roe v. Wade was overruled, abortion was an enthusiastic um, motivator for anti-abortion people and people who are pro-choice they're like ah whatever it's never really going to happen and who knows when it will if it will 
So now the enthusiasm has changed. It's become more on the pro-choice side of this. And the anti-abortion people are like, all right, we won. So they're not exactly as motivated as they were. So I – and, you know, Republicans count, both parties count on the independents, on the suburban vote. And that's something that could be drastically affected in the midterms. And not only in the midterms in terms of Congress, what about governor races, right? What about state legislatures? So, yeah, this will absolutely affect the the elections coming up. We just don't know how much it will affect the election coming up. And that was one thing I was, you know, going to bring up, too, is with, you know, with politics in the midterms in the fall, like I've I've always been a huge advocate for staying involved in local politics. And I think not enough people stay on top of their local politics, even just, you know, mayor or like your state representatives or, you know, your your governor and things like that. I think now that this, you know, Supreme Court decision has turned the abortion rights over to the states, I hope people will pay more attention to their local and state politics rather than just focusing on Capitol Hill. Because, you know, things that happen on Capitol Hill are like they impact everybody, but really what impacts you too is what happens in your own community, in your own state, in your own county. And I hope people are going to start paying more attention and wanting more of a say in, in what happens with their local leaders and, and their state leaders. Well said, well said. So let's move on to the Bruin case, the New York case related to gun control. Bernice, can you help us out again by giving us the facts of the case? The state of New York requires a person to show a special need for self-protection to receive an unrestricted license to carry a concealed firearm outside the home. Robert Nash and Brandon Cook challenged the law after New York rejected their concealed carry applications based on failure to show proper cause. A district court dismissed their claims, and the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed. So David, this New York law goes back to 1905 which is 117 years ago. And as a New Yorker and a resident of Manhattan yourself, this decision must be near and dear to your heart or your Kevlar vest. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it it is. And again, I'm I'm a New York City guy. But you know something? There's a quote that I think it's attributed to Michael J. Fox. And I think he says something to the effect of, don't worry about the worst case scenario. It rarely occurs that way, and by some fluke it does, you've lived, through it, you've lived through it twice. So I try not to get too worked up about something that may not happen. I don't always – I wish in every part of my life I was able to do that, but I try my best to live that way. So I'm not overly concerned yet until we kind of see how this plays out. What does the decision actually say, David? Does it, does it apply to – Every kind of, well, I mean, can you have an AR-15 in Manhattan or is it just handguns? It didn't, it talks about concealed weapons. So I'm not sure if they could really be concealed. So I, th- I think it's more of the handguns. That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure they really delved into in, delved into that too far in, in the decision. It would be hard yeah. to put an AR-15 conceal. I mean, I guess you could put it down your pant leg or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't think they, they went that, yeah, I don't think they went that far from what I, from what I read about it. Yeah. So, so Bernice, what does the Second Amendment actually say? A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. So, so the majority opinion is written by Clarence Thomas, 
where does this self-described ultra-conservative and avowed textualist, uh, which we discussed in the previous podcast, find in this 26-word sentence the right for an average person to carry a concealed weapon in public whenever and wherever they like? Yeah, like we discussed in the past, you could almost, a justice, a judge, could almost decide anything he wants. Walk into a case and say, this is where I want to go with this, and come up with legal arguments to back it up. Now, for example, the Second Amendment, in my opinion, can be looked at three different ways. All right? One is, it was written not for an individual's right to bear arms. It was written for the states to have established and maintain a militia. That's right. one way to look at it. And that's the way it was looked at until about 50, 60 years ago when the courts kind of changed their tune on that. The other way to look at it is, well, the government cannot infringe on anybody's right to bear arms. And if you read that literally, well, does that mean that I could walk around with grenades or bazookas? Or can I go to 7-Eleven to buy a nuclear weapon? If you want to read it to the word, you know, to the Second Amendment clearly and directly – then yeah, I guess I should be able to buy a, a nuclear weapon in 7-Eleven. <laughs> Most people, it's somewhere in between. So very few people say there should be no regulations. So where do you find it? You know, How far do you go? And that's where in this decision he kind of went, he, that, that was kind of how he decided it, saying there was no government basis to deprive gun, gun owners of their Second Amendment rights. So that, that was kind of the basis of his decision on this case. Well, and David, I was going to ask, because I actually listened to the oral argument. You know, they're all available on um, SCOTUS.gov, the oral argument of this case. So when the guy who was trying to convince the court to overthrow the New York law, when he comes in, and it was clear the conservatives were on their his side, but they started asking him if there were any limits on where somebody in New York could carry a gun. You know, they said, well, okay, obviously you're, you're out in the woods and you're hunting. That's one thing. But can you go to Times Square on New Year's Eve? And this is like Roberts and Barrett and Alito asking him these questions. Can you go to Times Square? Can you go to a football game, a baseball game? Can you go to a college campus with a gun? And he was How like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can. How about a Supreme Court uh, argument? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, Actually, the one, the one thing he conceded on is that you couldn't go into a government building with a gun. That was well, the only thing. Yeah. Maybe. He worked, He does work in a government building, so I guess it kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, so where do you draw the line on these things, right? Uh, you, courts, of course. Subways. I mentioned stadiums. Yep. So it, it, that was the kind of thing where, you know, when I read this, that was very – legislative of the court then they them just they decided what is reasonable what's not reasonable and this it, it, it's a lot is open to interpretation still because they didn't decide every single circumstance they just kind of made basic decisions based on their interpretation of the second amendment based on what the government should be allowed to do to restrict this perceived second Amendment rights, and if you read, I don't know if you read it a little bit of it. But they talked about how, and and I thought whether you know agree or disagree. I thought their argument was a smart argument in terms of they're them saying, well, the government 
can't really put restrictions on you without a really good reason. Just like they couldn't do it with freedom of speech. Just like they couldn't do it with a right to uh, Fifth Amendment, right of uh, self-incrimination. So the basic, so what they're trying to do is they're saying this is just like freedom of speech and the government can't restrict it without a really, really good reason. So that's kind of how I read his decision. The, the other point is that the justices and the majority and the dissent in both opinions we've discussed are the same, but they seem to use contradictory logic. So in Bruin, the gun ruling, the majority says that an individual state has no right to restrict the transportation of concealed weapons anywhere outside the home. But in Dobbs, the majority holds the individual states to have that right to control the bodies of 53% of the population, which is essentially all fertile women in the country. So how do they reconcile this apparent contradiction? I think how they reconcile it is basically saying abortion, not a right. Gun is a right. So I think that's how they kind of went about it logically. And again, agree or disagree. It, well, it, guns are mentioned in the Constitution and abortion so, is not. And abortion okay. is not. So the basis okay. is yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, you say state, you can't restrict guns in this way because guns are mentioned in the Constitution, whether it's right to bear arms or militia, while well, they believe it's right to, you know, individual. Or, and they say abortion, hey, you can't. Uh, you're allowed to have abortion laws in your state banning abortion because the Constitution doesn't mention abortion, and that's how they interpret the 14th Amendment. Agree or disagree, that's how they see it. So there is some logic to it if you if you look at it like that, and if you look at the Constitution and what they and how they interpret it. Okay, so so basically, you just saved me from having to go to law school to understand what everything is, <laughs> what, what's going on in the in the political world right now. Not really, because that Fourteenth Amendment is pretty can be interpreted so many different ways. The Second Amendment can be interpreted so many different ways. And back to what I said earlier, which is, you know, a judge, a justice could basically say, "This is how I want to decide," and come up with nice logical arguments about why why it's constitutional. And that's why they're the Supreme Court. They can if do whatever they want. They do whatever <laughs> they want. It must be great. <laughs> or the Supremes Court. Stop in the name of love. <laughs> uh, so now, uh, now yeah, please, David, yeah. let, let me at least mention something. Um, please. Optimistic, I guess, about, you know, we're ripping the Supreme Court here and we all have our concerns and our issues with the court. But I was reading or I heard an interview this week and I can't remember who it was. Um, maybe Sotomayor. Was that who it was? Um, she did an interview and she said some very nice things about Clarence Thomas. I was. Kind of I remember hearing that, but that was months ago, right? Yeah, she said he's not. What do you think he is? They're friendly. They get along. No, they're they, kind of buddies. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that because he's, he's. I was too. He's pretty out there, but as much as I think the Supreme Court controversy is uh, is concerning these days, I guess I was you know as opposed to you know what you know like we see on Capitol Hill. I was kind of happy to see that at least these justices do speak, do get along, do have relationships, as opposed to what we're seeing sometimes on Capitol Hill these days between Democrats and Republicans. 
Yeah, well, and that, until oh. this Alito thing came out, I hear that caused a big riff when that opinion leaked. But you but, see that in the Supreme Court. Remember, um, Ginsburg and Scalia were like best of friends. Yeah, they went on vacations together. Yeah. 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 Very close. That Very was close. weird. There's actually a play about them being yeah. buddies. Yeah. And Sorry. that makes Ellie, sense. Go ahead. I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, I, I have friends who disagree with me on pretty much every part of the political spectrum. And it doesn't mean we're not friends. You know, you can you can agree to disagree. And I mean, think about it. If you're working with the same other eight coworkers until you die, then you better get along. Right? Well, Congress, they really, you know, in the old days, they did. You know, in the old days, you'd have like Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan get a beer together. You don't really get that anymore. You don't see that. It's, it's I guess, because of the media and all the polarization, you don't see Democrats, Republicans hanging out together, going out Well, together. part of it was because they used to live here, and now they only work, uh, the whole, the Senate and the House only work Tuesday through Thursday, and then they go back home. So they, you know, they have places here to stay during those three days, but they're not actually living here during the term with their own wives or partners as they used to. But so, I think it goes beyond that. I think it does. I, okay. In my opinion, it goes beyond that because if you're whoever, you know, name your Republican, you know, Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, whatever, and you're seen having a beer with Chuck Schumer, it might hurt you back in your state. It will be used against you. That's how polarized we are these days. You can't be seen. Do you remember who was the um oh after nine eleven? Remember some of the there was a lot of uh, Democrats, Republicans embracing each other, and it was it was criticized by the far of far left, far right of each party for doing that. Well, and look how Ellen was crucified for hanging out with George W. Bush at a baseball game. I mean, not just, just not not even you know congressmen. It was like talk show hosts and former presidents. <laughs> oh yeah, and remember, was it um governor the governor of uh, New Jersey? Governor Chris Christie? Yeah, I think it was after that, was it the hurricane that destroyed New Jersey? He and he hugged her, Obama when he came yeah. out to, yeah. And he caught grief for that. And that's oh, man, grief. he did. I read his, his autobiography. He has a whole chapter just on that incident. He, he blames that incident for, because remember, he was running against Trump for president. He blames yeah. that incident on losing in the primary. Yeah, it's an unfortunate fact of life of our political environment these days that you can't be seen embracing literally or figuratively these people the opposite party and it's unfortunate this is the uh, world we live in these days yeah well uh i guess we're wrapping this up guys but before we go it looks like so these guys you know they wait till the very end of just before their break to release their hottest decision you know they're good merchandisers put the put the best merchandise in the back of the store but uh so you have to go all the way through but <laughs> when they come back in october you know they got a whole stack of controversial stuff waiting for them like school prayer in public schools lgbq uh t rights going to be another roller coaster ride what do you guys think are they just going to run a bulldozer right down the center of it I wonder if with the midterms coming up in November, if they might kind of put some brakes on some controversial – I have no reason to – I don't know that. 
I don't know how political they are, how much they care about the elections, but I wonder if they're going to want to be a little bit easy on the controversial decisions right before the midterms. Yeah, I can see, you know, people like Mitch McConnell calling them up and saying, okay, guys, yeah, put put on the brakes, okay? <laughs> At least well, for the next, Clarence, at least until after the election, yeah. Well, Clarence Thomas's wife, as you know, it's kind of controversial. Oh, yeah. She's very active politically, and her husband is Clarence Thomas. So, you know, it's, there's definitely a uh, concern about conflicts of interest there. So... She's going to testify on the January sixth before the January sixth committee. She's already agreed. Did she agree? Wow. Okay, that, she agreed. Been... I don't know when it's scheduled, but that's what's been reported. We didn't even touch on that. Wow, what a wild couple of weeks we've had in this country. Right. We have. Yeah, that's a whole. How about you, Ellie? What do you think? Well, I was going to say. I mean, if the Supreme Court's on summer break, I'm on summer break. But... <laughs> Hey, if they all vacation together and stuff and, you know, maybe they all just need a little break. Like maybe they all just need a little time to step away and be like, wow, what what are we doing? You know, maybe they all just need to hang out with each other a little bit more and maybe they'll go on vacation. Yeah. With Mitch McConnell and he'll be like, hey, guys, let's tamp it down until November and uh, and then you can do whatever you want. So um, I'm kind of curious. I'm curious to see what happens, but I'm going to completely forget about it probably until October when they come back. And, and, and what, what was uh, Kavanaugh's line at his hearing? I like beer. Is that what's his? <laughs> yeah. Do you like beer, Senator? <laughs> I mean, yeah. 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 Well, well we know what he'll be doing on his summer break. <laughs> yeah. He'll be having a good time. Absolutely. Lock up your daughters, everybody. Hide <laughs> 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 your kids. Hide your wife. Yeah. Yeah. So, David, I think it's very clear to anyone listening to this podcast that you're and obviously a superb attorney. How can people get in touch with you in your professional capacity? Yes, always happy to give free consultations to any of your listeners here at Scandal Sheet. You can call me at 212-527-7575. You can email me at dgrover at groverfen.com. That's Grover F. En.com. Call me, email me. I'll be happy to help anybody. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, David, for coming back. We really appreciate your insight. It's great to be here. Always great to see you guys. Have a great summer. Enjoy. Okay. We're resting our case on this episode, folks. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform and share it with all your friends. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you! You can reach us online at ScandalSheetPod.com, Facebook, or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at ScandalSheetPod.com. We'll see you next time on... Scandal Sheets! Copyright 2022, Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.